Welcome to Outreach Church. Thanks for checking out this week's message. To hear more, subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or visit outreachchurch.net for downloads and service information. How are you guys? Good, yeah? Gosh. Um, you know, this, <clears throat> the, um, that story used to trouble me sometimes when I read that. It's like, why wouldn't the five just share a little bit? I mean, it's not like that they were going to need it for much longer. The bridegroom was coming. What they were waiting for was coming. And, and they had some. Why couldn't they have just shared a little bit? And, and I realized that it wouldn't have done them any good. Because you have to have your own oil. You know, you can, you can be in a room with someone else's oil and it lights the room as long as they're in the room with you. But the second that they leave the room, you're left in the dark if you don't have your own oil. And their oil was for them. If we're not careful, we'll become so reliant on other people. We'll be like those people in the last days that look at Jesus and say, but Lord, Lord, didn't we? Didn't we? Didn't we? Notice they never said, didn't I? I think part of the reason for that maybe is because they were a part of a, of a group. They were a part of a body that was doing things. And because they were there with other people doing things, they attached themselves to it and it was going on and they identified with it, but it actually had nothing to do with them. They were just there. And so they looked around the last day when Jesus said, I don't know you. And they said, yeah, but didn't we do all this? Didn't we do all this? And Jesus, I could just picture him saying, listen, I'm not denying that stuff happened. I don't know you. I know that stuff happened. But I don't know you. We have to have our own oil. We have to have our own intimacy. We have to. And it only comes one way, and that's spending time with Him. There's no shortcut in the kingdom of heaven. There's no shortcut. It's spending time with Him. It's knowing Him and being known by Him. It's being alone with Him. It's making Him a priority. It's waking up in the morning and saying, God, if nothing else today, I'm going to seek You. I'm going to seek You first. God, if nothing else, early in the morning when I rise, God, I'm going to seek You today. God, I need to know You. I need to spend time with You. God, if nothing else goes on today that I know about, if nothing else happens today, I'm going to choose first today that nothing else will happen today before I've spent time with You. Before I've sat with You. Before I've been with You. And then I can go out and the rest of the day can happen, but God, I don't want to do anything until I've been with You. And, I, it's, and it's so, it sounds sometimes just so like cliche, like, you know, seek him in the morning earlier, you know, first thing when you get up. But the truth of the matter is, it's like if you wake up in the morning and your heart doesn't desire to actually be with him and spend time with him, seek him anyways. But when you're alone, ask him, God, why is it that the last thing that I want to do is seek you? God, why is it? I'm going to seek you anyways. Like, don't let your emotions be the barometer for whether or not you seek him. Like, when you wake up in the morning and you're excited to seek him, you're excited to spend time with him, seek him and spend time with him. When you wake up in the morning and you're not, seek him and spend time with him. But don't settle for that. And when you're alone with him, ask him, God, why isn't there more of a hunger in my heart? God, what is it that's stealing my attention or my affection? God, why is it that when I wake up in the morning, the last thing that I want to do, why is it such a fight, God? Because he said that he'd give us the desires of our heart. God, if you said you'd give me the desire of my heart and I know that you want me to desire you, then why am I not feeling that? Why am I not seeing that? And seek Him and press in and don't stop until you have what you're looking for. 
There's something about going after him and just grabbing a hold of him, like Jacob wrestling, you know, and like the woman with the issue of blood, right? There's so many people that were just casually brushing up against Jesus, but there was one woman who purposefully grabbed a hold of him for a reason. Like, well, you can come to church and just brush up against him. You know, he said, who touched me? The disciples said, what do you mean, who touched you? We're in a crowded marketplace. They're saying, God, there's people touching you all over the place. Like you're walking through a crowded market. How can you ask us who touched you? Everybody touched you. And Jesus said, no, 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 but, but power went out of me. Who touched me? What was he saying? He's saying, listen, there's a difference in just bumping up against me. There's a difference in just casually brushing up against me. There's a difference in just being part of a crowd that's moving in an area that I'm in and seeing me and bumping against me and actually purposefully grabbing a hold of me and saying, I won't let go until I have what I'm here for. There's a difference. Because every single person touched him that day, only one person actually had power flow out of him into their life. It was the woman who grabbed a hold of him purposefully and had purposed in her heart, if I could just touch the hem of his garment. It's not about casual Christianity. It's not about like seeing if we can brush up against him in a room and, and get a feeling. It's about saying, like, I have to have him. My life depends on it. See, that lady was desperate because her life depended on it. It said she had spent all of her money. She had seen every doctor. In other words, she was hopeless except for this one hope. And she said, she purposed in her heart, there's nowhere in the Word that it says, if you touch his garment, you'll be healed. She determined, she said that. If I could just touch the hem of his garment, I know that I'll be healed. She put her faith in the fact that he's good, he's a healer, and if I can just grab a hold of him, something will happen. And she set her heart on that, and she sought him out, and in a crowd, she worked her way through a crowd, and she wasn't content to just brush up against his garment like other people. She reached out and grabbed a hold, and the second she did, Jesus said, power just went out of me. Who touched me? I feel like that's available for every single one of us every single day that we can seek Him out and grab a hold of Him with it purposed in our heart. God, I have to have more of You. God, I need Your power. I need Your love. I need You in my life. I need Your presence, God. I can't. I don't want to live another day just walking around casually. I need You. I need you. I have to have you. I've spent all my money. I've seen every answer the world has and it's left me the same. I need something more. And that kind of desperation for Him and that kind of attitude towards Him will always make a draw on who He is and always make a pull on the power of God. Jesus said, I felt power flow out of me. Why didn't it flow out when all... Do you think there was no other sick people in that marketplace? Like, just being honest, like, think about it. Like, you go out to a crowded marketplace. Back then, the marketplace was everybody in the city came together on that one day because it was the day that everybody sold stuff. They didn't have stores every day all day long. And so there was the marketplace. It was like, if you needed stuff for the week, you went there and you bartered and you traded and you bought and you sold and you did those things. It was everybody from the town, all the people from the surrounding area there. You think there was more than one person sick maybe in that group. Why is it that nobody else had power flow out of Jesus into them as they brushed up against Him? Because there was something casual about them. Because they didn't recognize Him for who He was. Or they didn't make the demand on Him for, for what He could do. And so they just brushed up against Him and nothing changed. But the one person who grabbed a hold of Him purposed in her heart, I will get a hold of His garment and I will be healed. And it happened and it was done to her as she believed. 
Come on, you guys. Like, it doesn't happen casually. It doesn't happen from being in a room full of people that are going after Him. We can spur each other on in love and good deeds. We can encourage each other. We can worship together. We can pour into each other. But at the end of the day, nobody can take your hand and reach out and grab a hold of Jesus for you. You have to do it yourself. You have to. Oh, why don't we, uh, real quick, just stand up right where you are. Yeah. Here comes some forced socialization. Well, I see some people here I don't know, so there's probably people here you don't know. Okay, listen, just real quick, okay? This is really simple. Like, no, wait, it just before you start looking around and, and doing that, just, just let's like think about this reality. That right now there is a room full of people who if they were asked would say they're born again, and the Spirit of the living God, the same Spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead in the grave, lives and dwells inside of them. Right? And if everywhere that there were people filled with the Spirit, signs and wonders followed where they went. If everywhere there were people filled with the Spirit, He spoke through them, He spoke, uh, people spoke on, on His behalf, then there's probably a good chance with this many people gathered in a room together, filled with the Spirit of God, that there's something He wants to do for people in this room. And it may be through you. So just real quickly, just set your attention on Him and just ask Him, God, is there anybody you want me to talk to, pray for, speak to, encourage, give a hug to, smile at? Whatever the case is, God, I'll be obedient. And then just go find somebody if you feel like they're there. If you don't, find someone you don't know, start talking. Maybe it'll happen as you talk. All right, well, welcome today. Um, we're really, really, really glad that you're here. Is anyone here very first time visiting us, coming and being part of the family of God here? Yeah? Awesome. Thank you, guys. Welcome. Um, we're really glad you're here. You could have done anything this morning, and you chose to come here, and we're thankful for that. Um, we feel like you add who you are to what God's doing, not just come to receive, but you actually bring something, you carry something. Um, so really excited about that. Super excited about just the word that God's given me to, to share this morning. Um, it was actually f- supposed to be for last week, and then last week happened, so it's for this week. How many of you guys were here last week? Yeah? <laughs> I don't know if I should be offended by that or not. People were like, that was the best service ever, you know? Coincidentally, it's the first one I didn't preach. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm over it. It took till Wednesday, but I'm over it now. <laughs> No, it was awesome, right? But it's like, I felt like it was a time, and I just real quickly just want to say, like, I felt like that was a, a, a fork in the road for our church. And it's like, as a body, what are you going to do when you cry out for something and I respond? Are you going to just move on to the next song, move on to the next thing, and have church like you had scheduled? Or are you actually going to acknowledge what I'm doing and, and, and go with me and go where I want to go? And, and to have a body of believers that you know when you stand up and say, let's just go where we feel like God's going, you know they're with you and you know they're excited about it and not going, but, but, we, but we need the message. It's so awesome. It is. Like, it's so awesome because it's like, I, I feel like truly we're walking this road together. You know, and like, I don't ever want to be the guy that has all the answers. So I'm not that smart. But I want to be the guy that when I hear the one who does, I know that everybody's with me. And I love that. And it's so freeing. So thank you guys. Um, I found, if you're, if people ask me about this, I'll just address it so it doesn't distract anybody. I found something else that is sharper than a two-edged sword and able to divide meat from bone. Um, 
I, I, um, I'm into the pottery, for those of you guys that don't know. I make all the pots. And, um, and I was making slip, which is a combination of water and clay, you know, a thin slurry that you bind things together with. And um, so I was using an immersion blender, a stick blender, and, uh, and it got clogged with clay. And so I, being the resourceful young man that I am, decided I would just use my finger to clean it out. Well, while I was in the process of cleaning it out, the blender started to slip and I grabbed it and I hit the power button. Yep, it's sharp. It's super sharp. And, um, and, and, and there truly now is like my blood and my sweat in those pots that I made. Because it went like that. And I was like, oh my. And I, I like grabbed a towel and threw it over it and was holding it. And you see the blood starting to build up. And, and I, I found myself talking to myself. And I said out loud, well, well that's not good. <laughs> and so, um, so I, I did what, what every Christian that doesn't use their brain does when they face the result of stupidity. I prayed. Right? Like the first thing that you should do is just use the common sense and the wisdom that God gave you. There's nothing unspiritual about being wise and having common sense. But if that fails and you don't do that, it's good that you can actually call out to a living God and you can pray to Him. And, and so I just said, God, I really don't want to have to get stitches or anything like that. And his answer was, okay. And so I took the rag off and it was done bleeding and I put some Neosporin on it, band-aided it up, and then it bled again a couple of times. And now it's almost totally healed up. So... I'm thankful for that, yeah. But, um, but the truth of the matter is, is I wouldn't have, and I didn't plan to talk about this, so just real quickly, just a side note here, I, I wouldn't have needed to pray about my finger had I just used the wisdom that God had given me. Oh, and unplugged it. Yeah, like... <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, my wife, Patty. No, but on a serious note, you guys, Listen. Like, there's principles in the Word of God that if we would apply them to our lives, we would need a lot less emergency prayer. We would need a lot less Shabbat if we would eat a little more broccoli. I'm being serious. I, that, I'm, not, I'm not being irreverent. I'm being serious. Like, a lot of health problems that we get prayer for because we don't actually eat in moderation and we don't watch our diet and stuff like that. I know that's a, that's a sacred cow in the church. You can't talk about that stuff. You can talk about every other problem in the church. But you start talking about that stuff, and now you're stepping on people's toes. But the truth of the matter is that self-control is the fruit of the Spirit. All things in moderation. You know, all these things. Temperance. Those are, those are things that are biblical. They're in the Word. We're instructed. The same God that said, or the same Paul that wrote that, you know, I wish all of you would pray in tongues also said that we should practice moderation in all things. And, and one's not spiritual, one's secular, one's not for the weak Christian, one for the strong Christian. They're all for everybody. And so I, I pray for, for healing, but on the same hand, like I would be wrong if I wasn't actually speaking the truth that said, listen, there's ways that you can live, that God's given us things that we can actually do on this earth that will cause our, our earthly temples, our bodies, to actually prosper and to be in good health. And sometimes some of the things we're praying for because we fail to actually use common sense and wisdom and so we end up needing prayer for it and i'm not downing needing prayer but i am saying that let's also not forget that the same god that told us we should pray told us we should practice self-control and that we should probably do all things in moderation all right that went over real well 
endeared me to the hearts of everybody here. Listen, I'm not, like, we pray for everything and believe that, like, God is a healer and He heals and all this stuff, you know, and He sets people free from addiction. On the same hand, He's also put things in place and you wouldn't need prayer for that addiction if you would actually follow the voice of the Holy Spirit before you came addicted. Is what I'm saying. So let's actually acknowledge Him in all things, not just emergency things. How about that? Maybe that's a better way of saying it. Yeah? Okay. All right. So I want to finish up on something we've been talking about for a few weeks, um, maybe a month now. And we talked about Isaiah 55, and, and we talked about how it's, you know, it says, Let the wicked man abandon his ways, the foolish man his thoughts. For my ways are not your ways, says the Lord. My thoughts are not your heart thoughts. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts your thoughts. And how that's been used to say, like, God's a God that you'll never figure out. And so if we don't understand something, we just write it off to Isaiah 55 that, you know, well, his ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. But, but that's not what that verse is doing. That's not what that verse is for. It's not why it's in the Word. It's actually in the Word because it's an invitation from God for us to think and act and be the way that he is. He says, let the foolish man abandon his thoughts. Let the wicked man abandon his ways. Why? Because my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. He's not saying abandon your ways and thoughts so that you have no ways and thoughts. Oh, and by the way, mine are better. He's saying abandon your ways and thoughts because my ways and thoughts are better. It's an invitation into something, not God flaunting that He's much better than we are. It's an invitation. It's an offer. It's saying, listen, if you're living foolishly or wickedly, what is foolish? Foolish doesn't know better. What is wicked? Wicked knows better and chooses not to anyways. So he's saying, listen, whether you're doing it because you don't know better or whether you're doing it because you do know better and you're choosing to do the other thing, abandon that because my ways are better and my thoughts are higher. It's an invitation to thinking the way that he thinks and living the way that he lives. And that same prophet Isaiah who prophesied that in Isaiah 55, if you, if, listen, if, if that's your first time hearing that, when you go home today, open up Isaiah 55 and just read that in context and you'll see it's an invitation from God into something. Not him sticking out his tongue and saying, na 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 na. But that's the way it's been used. Like, well, you know, even God said. Well, he said that because he wanted to invite us into that. And then the same prophet Isaiah that wrote that also prophesied that there was one coming, Jesus, who would be the perfect representation of the nature of the Father. And Jesus came and then demonstrated what it was like for man, for humanity, to abandon foolish and wicked ways and actually take on the ways of God and live on this life as a human being filled with, filled with the Holy Spirit, following the voice of God and abandoning foolish and wickedness and taking on His ways and His thoughts. And He demonstrated that for us. He demonstrated it for the disciples. And um, if you have your Bibles, we'll open them up real quick to, um, well, let's see. We're going to jump around a little bit today, so let me figure out. Um, Okay, open them up to Psalm 103, um, verse 7. So Jesus came and the first thing He said was, Repent. Change the way that you think. He said that over and over again. There's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. And so John the Baptist said, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Change the way that you think, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We've taken repentance and boiled it down to feeling sorry for something and asking forgiveness, which is certainly a part of changing the way we think. But the whole reason that we feel sorry and ask for forgiveness is because our thinking has changed and we see a better way. 
I see a standard that Jesus set, and I see that my life doesn't measure up to what Jesus' standard was that He called me into. And so I feel sorry for the things that I've done wrong and the ways that I've missed it. And because the way that I think has changed, I see that the way that I was living was wrong and I recognize my need for a Savior and I repent. I ask God to forgive me. But once that happens, there's this responsibility that I carry because I receive His forgiveness and I receive who He is. I receive new life. I'm no longer the same. I'm a new creation. But to whom much is given, much is required. So now there's a requirement on my life and there's a standard on my life and it's Jesus and it's not okay for me to just go back and live the way that I lived before I change the way that I think. If I'm doing that, it's an endless cycle where I'll feel sorry for my sin, I'll apologize, I'll stop doing it until the remembrance of how bad it felt when I did it disappears and sin starts to look good again. I'll fall into sin, I'll feel shame, guilt, regret, I'll apologize, I'll feel bad, and I'll stay away from it long enough until it loses its sting and then I'll start to go back to it. And it's this endless cycle that so many people live in of guilt, shame, asking forgiveness, being sorrowful, and then falling back into it and starting the guilt, shame, and sorrowful process again. At some point, you have to get off the merry-go-round. You have to understand that you were set free from sin, not set free to sin. You have to understand, because if the way that we think doesn't change, I will, I will know that what I'm doing is wrong, but I won't know that there's a way that I can live that actually empowers me to not do the things that are wrong. And if the way that I think doesn't change, my actions will never change because every action starts with my thought process. So God in Isaiah and through the life of Jesus is saying, listen, there's a way that you think. And it leads to death. But there's a way of thinking that I'm going to demonstrate through my Son and invite you into by the Holy Spirit living in your life that actually leads you to life and to godliness. And so if we never ever change the way that we think, if we never change the way that we think about things, if we never change the way we see things, we'll constantly repeat the same cycle and we'll be the most frustrated human beings on earth because we know enough to know what we're doing is wrong. It's no longer foolish, but now it's wicked because we know what we're doing is wrong, but yet we keep going back to it and choosing it. And it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. And then we start to say, well, that's just the way it is because I'm just human. And we'll justify justify that cycle and we'll live in that cycle and we'll preach that cycle and then the freedom that we offer people isn't freedom at all it's one day when you die then you'll be free but here on earth there's no such thing as freedom and in that case death is your savior not the blood of jesus christ it's a tragedy if the best we can offer people is well at least now for the rest of your life, you'll know what you're doing is wrong and you'll feel sorry. And you'll live with shame and guilt. But one day when you die, you'll go to heaven. We're not preaching the Gospel of the Kingdom. We're not preaching what Jesus preached. And we're not demonstrating the life that Jesus came and lived. The problem with that is Jesus didn't say, go and preach the Gospel of salvation. He said, go and preach the Gospel of the Kingdom. And He said, as the Father sent Me into the world, so I also send you. What was He saying? Go and demonstrate what it looks like to follow, live your life following after the Spirit of God the way that I demonstrated it for you. If you've seen Me, you've seen the Father. Jesus came to demonstrate the Father. And then He sent us into the world as His disciples to demonstrate the Father to a world that doesn't know Him, doesn't know who He is, and if they've heard about Him, a lot of what they heard might be wrong. Because He's not an angry guy in the sky. He's not Santa. So, man, I'm telling you, that Santa Claus thing. 
Because a lot of our ideas of what Jesus, what God is like are, sound a lot more like Santa Claus than they do the Father God. Because He's this old guy in the sky that sees everything you're doing and is keeping a list, naughty or nice, and He's going to give to you what you deserve. And that's our idea of God a lot of times if we're not careful. He's an old guy in the sky that sees everything that happens and is keeping a list, checking it twice, going to find out if you're naughty or nice, and He gives to you based on what you've done and whether you've been good or bad, you get what you deserve. And the Gospel is so contrary to that. It reveals a father that looks down at Peter and says, Peter, I know that you denied me three times, but guess what? I'm going to bring you back into my fold. I've never given up on you. I still see you for who you are. See, Jesus was trying to teach Peter this the whole time he was here on earth. The whole time. Peter, he says, if it's you, Lord, bid me come. Peter steps out onto the water and his eyes are on Jesus. He's doing what Jesus called him to do. Jesus called him to him. It's not like he's out on the water in disobedience. Jesus said, come. And so Peter starts walking. His eyes are on Jesus. The minute he takes his eyes off Jesus, he starts to fall. What does Jesus do? Does he stand on top of the water and scold him and say, see? You want to be like me? You want to walk on the water? You think you got what it takes? How'd that treat you? He doesn't do that. He doesn't say, let him drown a little bit and spit a little bit and he'll get back to the boat eventually and that'll teach him to never step out on the water again. He doesn't do that. What does he do? He reaches down and he grabs him and he pulls him up. What's he saying? Peter, every single time you fall, I'll pick you up and I'll place you right back where you were. He wants him to understand this. Why? Because he sees the beginning from the end, the end from the beginning, and he knows there's a day coming where Peter will deny him, and in his mind, he'll disqualify himself from being a servant of God. So what does Jesus do? He says, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. And, and, and Satan has, has asked me permission to sift you like wheat. What was he saying? He's saying, Peter, Satan has asked if he can test your faith. But I've prayed for you that your, test will, that your faith will remain. Before the day ends, you're going to deny me three times. Three times. In one day. One of those times to a little girl. Peter, you won't have the courage to admit that you know me to a little child. But it's okay. So Peter does these things and you know, never will it happen. How many times have we said that to God? God, I'll never let that happen. God, I'll never do that again. God, I'll never ever miss that again. God, the next time you tell me, I promise I will. And we mean it from a sincere heart and then we find ourselves kicking ourselves going, oh, missed it. Peter does that. So he goes off and he's returned to fishing. And Jesus comes back and He sees Mary. And he sends her with a message. Do you remember what he said? He said, go tell my brothers and Peter that I'm going to come and meet them. And I used to read that and think Jesus was singling him out because of what he did wrong. And then I read it a couple months ago and I realized, no, he was actually letting Peter know, Peter, even though you failed me three times, I still consider you one of my brothers. And if she doesn't call you by name, you'll disqualify yourself. And when she comes and says, Jesus said to tell His brethren He's going to meet them in Galilee, you'll stay on the boat and go somewhere else because in your mind, you'll disqualify you from something. But I want you to know this, Peter. Even though you failed three times, I still consider you my brother. I'm not ashamed to call you my brother or my friend. And I want you to come to me because I'm going to restore you and I'm going to put you into a place where you'll be the first person to preach the Gospel and see 3,000 people saved. 
See, he's been trying to teach him this his whole time on earth. Everything that he did was supposed to be a revelation of who he was, not just what he could do. If we're not careful, we'll have the same problem that Peter had because we'll see the things that he does as things that he did, but we won't see the heart of the Father in them and we won't take them as a revelation of who he is. So, um, so if you have your Bibles open to Psalm, it's just one verse, Psalm 103, um, 7. It says, He made his, known his ways to Moses, his acts to the sons of Israel. He's saying basically, listen, uh, to, to Moses, Moses knew things about me that I made known to him, but the children of Israel only knew my acts. And that could seem exclusionist, and you could see, well, why didn't God make his ways known to Israel as well? He wanted to, and it was his desire to. Remember what he told Moses? Call all the people, bring them up onto the mountain. I'm going to speak to my people. And the people drew back and said, no, Moses, you go on our behalf, for if he speaks to us, we will die. And so they put Moses in the place that God wanted all of them to be. It was his heart to bring all of his people to himself and make himself known to every single one of his people. But the people chose not to and said, no, Moses, you go up and speak on our behalf. And in that day, they made a choice. And that choice meant that from that day forward, to Moses, he would make known his ways, but to them, he would make known his acts. And if you look those words up in the Greek, it's pretty neat. It says that to, God, to Moses... God made known His derek, which means a road or a path of life. But to Israel, a lilah, which means an exploit or an action, an event. What is he saying? He's saying Moses knew the path, the way, the road. I made that known to him. To Israel, all they could do is see the things that I did as they walked down that path. It makes sense then why every time something happened, Moses was the one who didn't panic. Moses was the one who didn't want to go back to Egypt. Moses was the one who wasn't terrified when things were coming in behind them. Because why? God had shown him the way, the path, the road. The Israelites were simply forced to walk along that same road and, and only see the things that he did. So they didn't see him in the things that he did. All they saw was he was the God who parted the sea, but they didn't see him as the God who would protect them from every one of their enemies. So if they came to another ocean, they probably might have had faith that He was the God who parted the sea and they probably would have said, alright Moses, do that thing with the rod and we'll walk through this ocean again because they had seen His action, but they didn't know His ways. So when they came to a land that they saw people who were greater than them, they didn't take the revelation they were supposed to receive by seeing Him deliver them from the, Philist from the uh, Egyptians and take that same revelation and understand, okay, the same God that delivered us from the hand of the Egyptians will deliver us from the hand of the Canaanites. And so they were terrified and they were panicked. Because in seeing what He did, they missed who He was. It was never his heart for them to just have stories about him and what he could do. It was always his heart for them to understand who he was and who he wanted to be for them. So if they found themselves in a situation they couldn't fear because of what God had revealed to them about who he was, but instead they, all they could see was his actions. So he was the God who brought water out of a rock, but he wasn't the God who would supply them with a land flowing full of milk and honey. And they missed all of his ways and only understood his actions. It happened to the disciples. Right? It happened to the disciples. Um, and if, if you have your Bibles, open them up. Uh, here, we're going to stay here for a little bit to Mark chapter 8, verse 13. 
See, if the way that we think isn't changed, we'll resort to one of two things. Because if the way that we think isn't changed, the way that we live won't change. And so we'll revert to one of two things if we believe there is a God. We will either get into legalism or we'll get into liberalism. Legalism makes rules the highest priority and it tries to remove every opportunity that there is to sin. So the legalist, because he has a problem with what he looks at, smashes his television but never deals with the fact that he has a heart that wants to see the things that he was looking at on the television. The legalist places rules on things. He says, you can't go here, you can't go here, you can't go here, you can't go there. I'm not against saying there's places that I won't go. I have places I won't go and I have things that I won't watch. But that's not to keep me from the things that I want. It's to place a guard so that there's not things that I don't want being placed into my life. I don't go to movies with a certain rating because I understand if the world says that you have to be over 13 to watch it, it probably means that you shouldn't watch it at all. Right? Like the movie rating system is just how much evil will I allow into my eyes? And it feels good to say, well, I, I don't watch rated R movies. Well, the problem is, is that what was rated R 20 years ago is now rated PG-13. And what's rated PG-13 today will be rated PG in 20 years. And if our standard is the world's standard, then we're like frogs in a pot and we don't even know that it's starting to boil. So at some point, we have to set a standard for ourselves. This is, I'm not going to allow things into my eyes that defile my eyes because I don't want to have to put things into my memory that I'm going to have to work to forget. I never want to have to work to forget something. If I know I'm going to have to renew my mind to it, I probably shouldn't place it in my mind to begin with. Right? Like, I'm not going to say, well, I, you know, I'll just pray and God will flush and, and wipe those memories. Listen, there's enough stuff you're going to wander across accidentally that you need God to flush from your memory. Don't intentionally put stuff into your head that you know you're going to have to pray for Him to remove later. That's not legalism. That's just saying, I don't want it, so why would I ever give it place? And if I do want it, then I shouldn't just make the movie the problem. I should probably get alone with God and say, God, why do I want these things? Because you said you would take the heart of stone from me and you would place a heart of flesh inside of me and you would write my law upon my heart and my heart would be to know you. Why am I wanting these things? Why is there a reason that I want these things? And deal with the reason rather than getting into legalism. The other thing we'll get into, the other ditch, is liberalism. Liberalism looks for loopholes in the Word that says it's okay for me to do whatever I want because there's grace. Oh. So you're really saying that Jesus died for you to be set free from things so that you could enjoy those things that He died for. Come on. That doesn't even make sense. Yeah, you can't out the grace of God. But if you've seen Jesus hanging on a cross dripping His blood for you, why would you want to? Why would you want to abuse the gift of grace that's been given to you? Why wouldn't you want to use the gift of grace to become more like Him, to see how close you can walk to Him rather than how close you can walk to the fence and still call yourself a Christian? I said this last week. I'll say it again. Listen, if you're having to wonder if it's sin, don't do it. That's a simple standard. If you're honestly debating, I'm not sure if this is sin or not, it may not be a sin, but it certainly isn't the best the Father has for you because you think there's a chance it may be something Jesus died for. And if in your mind there's a chance that He died for it, you probably shouldn't live for it. And then you will never get to heaven and have God tell you, hey, guess what? You could have actually done that and been okay. He's not going to do that. What's He going to say? Well done, good and faithful servant because you came after me with all that you had and forsake everything else and there were things that you could have done that would have been okay but you chose the best thing 
That's what I want to hear. I want that. I want to hear that. I want to hear there's nothing wrong with doing dishes, but right now when I'm here, you chose the best thing. That was to sit at my feet. There was no sin in doing the dishes. There was just something better sitting in the living room. That was what Jesus was saying. Why do we have to make it about sin or not sin? Why don't we make it about choosing the best? When you get married and your wife's standing at the end of the aisle, I tell every single groom this, and every single time, without fail, they see it. I said, you're about to get the greatest picture of what it is that we see and what we have in Jesus Christ when those doors open or when that car pulls up or however it happens and your wife steps out and you see her. Because as she's walking towards you, you're about to say no to every single woman in this world besides her. And you won't be thinking about one of them because you'll be seeing who you get to say yes to. And that's what this life in Christ is. I'm getting to say yes to Him. Why would I sit around and count all the things that I'm saying no to? If, if my life is about the things that I've said no to, I haven't seen the beauty of the one that I said yes to. If I've reduced this life down to a legalistic bunch of rules and the things that I've said no to, I've probably missed out on the beauty of the one that I said yes to. Because when I see Him, I want to be like Him. And that draws my heart. Is that to say that you never have a moment of weakness where you turn back to something or you do something that you shouldn't? No, that's what grace is for. It's so that along the way as you're running after Jesus and you trip, not as you walk along the way you're running after Jesus and you purposely take a diversion. Not that there's not grace for that, but that's not what that's for. It's not to give you a license to sin. It's to give you freedom from sin. So as I'm running towards Him and I trip and I fall, grace comes along, picks me up, puts me back on the path and puts me back where I was going as if it never happened. Remove from it as far as the east is from the west. Lost in the sea of forgetfulness. Let me just say that. like, If God doesn't think it's worth remembering, I shouldn't either. So if I read in the Word that it says that so far from Him is removed my sin as the east is from the west, lost in the sin of forgetfulness, that I, the Lord their God, am the God who will pardon their sins and remember them no more. If God doesn't think it's worth remembering, I surely shouldn't think so either. I should probably forget what lies behind and press forward towards the high mark of the calling that I might receive the prize. I don't know how we got there. Someone needed to hear that. And you know what? And here's the thing. You will get called a Pharisee and a legalist for your stance on things by people who your life convicts. I promise you that. Be ready for it and be okay with it. I am okay if my life looks different than people who are not chasing after Jesus and making Him the standard, I'm okay with that. In fact, if I'm called to be peculiar and there's nothing peculiar about me, I might want to wonder who I'm following after. If I'm called to be set apart, but there's nothing in my life that sets me apart besides the words that I say on Sunday morning, I probably should wonder if I'm really set apart. Does that feel heavy or does that feel encouraging? Encouraging? All right, good, because that's what it's supposed to be. It's always to encourage us into what is, not to point out what's not. Right? So if I find that I've let my life slip a little bit and I've just kind of got lax on some things, it's okay, but it's not okay to stay there and use grace as an excuse to stay where I know I was never supposed to be. That's the difference. Grace is the power to change, not the power to stay where I am and be okay. I was never supposed to be able to stay in sin and use grace as a pillow to be comfortable there. I was supposed to recognize that what I was doing wasn't wrong and use grace as a ladder to get out of the pit and to get on with my life with Jesus. It's never to make me comfortable where I am. A man in a pit does not need a pillow. He needs a rope. You don't need to make people feel comfortable living in their sin. You need to give them the truth, the rope that allows them to get up out of where they are and live a better way. 
well, yeah, but you have to be loving. Well, the only reason you would do that is you love somebody. I mean, the least loving thing you could do is see somebody in a pit, go to your house, get them a pillow, come back and throw them a pillow. <laughs> see, that's the thing though. If for a season that may seem loving, it may seem nice, it may seem comfortable, but after you walk away and that pillow starts to get flat and the feathers lose their bounce and their butt still hurts and they're still in a pit, they're going to wonder why you didn't actually give them something that could get them out of there rather than something that made them comfortable where they were. That's the truth in love. I feel like we should just give an altar call right now because I feel like this is landing on some people. I mean, if you've allowed things in your life and you've let things slip and you've let things slide and you know it, don't take condemnation, but don't take comfort either. Let yourself hate it so much that you want to change. That you throw yourself at the feet of Jesus and say, I, I, forgive me. I've messed up, but I see that I've messed up and now I know that there's grace. I want to walk and I want to get on with my life, not stay here floundering on the ground feeling sorry, but not stay there floundering in the ground not knowing I should be sorry. I don't want to be wicked or foolish. I want to exchange wickedness and foolishness for His ways and His thoughts. That's Isaiah 55. If you're doing it because you don't know better or you do know better and you're choosing something else, abandon that because my way is better and my thoughts are higher. It's an invitation up into something. It's what the life of Jesus was. So in Mark chapter 8, verse 13, it says, And he left them, and getting into the boat again, departed to the other side. Now the disciples had forgotten to take bread, and they did not have more than one loaf with them in the boat. Then he charged them, saying, Take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, It's because we have no bread. But Jesus, being aware of it, said to them, why do you reason because you have no bread? Have you not per- yet perceived or not yet understand? Is your heart still hardened? Having eyes do you not see and having ears do you not hear? And how do you not remember? When I broke up the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of fragments did you take up? They said to him, 12. Also, when I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many large baskets of fragments did you take up? And they said, seven. So he said to them, how is it you do not understand? So Jesus and the disciples get in the boat. Right before this, He had fed the 4,000. The Pharisees came to question Him. He saw them coming and He didn't want to deal with their... He he knew exactly why they were coming. So it says He got into the boat and took off again. And they get into the boat and the disciples only have one loaf of bread. It says, in getting in the boat, they departed to the other side. Now the disciples had forgotten to take bread. They forgot to take bread. And, he, and they did not have any more than one loaf. And he said to them, take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And the first thing they can think of is, oh, he's saying that to us because we forgot to bring bread. And Jesus, understanding that that was their thought process, cuts in and says, wait a minute, what are you guys doing? Why do you reason about not having bread? Don't you remember with the 5,000 what I was able to do? Don't you remember with the 4,000 what I was able to do? Why is it now that when you only have one loaf of bread and I say something to you, your first thought is, well, he must be talking about the fact that we forgot to take bread. Why does he rebuke them and say, do you still not believe? Why, why, why when they're in the boat and they wake him up, does he not say to them, oh, it warms my heart that you know when you're in trouble to call on me? No, I'm serious. 
Why doesn't he say that to them? See, we think it's okay to just know that Jesus is the one to call on in trouble, but Jesus' standard that He gave the disciples was, if I'm in the boat with you and I told you let's go to the other side, you're not actually in trouble. Why do you have such little faith? He doesn't say, guys, I'm so glad, I'm so proud of you, I'm so thankful that when you got into a time of trouble, you knew to turn to me. Look, this is Jesus. These are red letters. He rebukes them. He doesn't say, finally, you've come to a place where when you're terrified, you turn to me. He says, why is it that you have so little faith? What is he saying? He's saying, you guys, after everything I've demonstrated for you, you should be at a place now that if the little storm comes and we're in the boat and I've said, let's go to the other side, that you trust me more than what you see. That that my words, let's go to the other side, carry more weight than the storm that your eyes see. And you woke me up and I will tell the waves to be quiet, and I will tell the wind to calm. I'll do that. I will rescue you. But this is not what I wanted. What I wanted was for you to have enough faith in me that either you spoke to the storm or you ignored the storm the way I am and went to sleep trusting that what I said is greater than the storm that you see. So here again, same scenario. And they say, well, he must be talking about the fact that we don't have bread. He rebukes them and says, don't you guys remember what I did? Don't you remember how when there was... I broke the five loaves for the 5,000 and there was 12 left over. When I broke the seven for the 4,000 and there were seven loaves left over. How is it that you don't understand? What is he saying to them? He's saying, you guys, when I did those things, it was not so that you had a cool story to put on Facebook to tweet, to tell your friends to impress them the next time you guys are all hanging out. I did them to show you what I'm like and who I am and to reveal something to you that would sustain you for the rest of your life so you would never again find yourself in a place where you could question how you're going to eat when I'm with you and you're doing what I've called you to do. Don't you remember? You guys... You're getting caught up in my acts and you're not seeing my ways. You're being like the children of Israel who are impressed by what I do but not impressed with who I am. And you don't understand that I'm not doing these things so you have a story to tell I'm doing these things so that the way that you think gets changed because there's an expectation that once you experience that, it actually changes the way that you think and you can never again think the way you did before you experienced it. And to whom much is given, much will be required. What was required of them? What was required of them is that they would never again come to a place of being terrified about how they're going to eat because of a lack of food when Jesus is with them and they're doing what He called them to do. Because there was an expectation that what they experienced and what He told them and what He showed them would actually change the way that they think. So the next time they got into a situation where there was only one loaf of bread for 13 people, it would seem like nothing because they saw what He could do with 5,000 people with seven loaves of bread. Like, if I can feed 5,000 people and there be leftovers, then I'm probably okay feeding 13 with one loaf. Do the math. Seven divided into 5,000 is a whole lot less to work with than one divided into 13. Naturally, they should have understood this. And he said to them, listen, there was something hidden in there that you guys didn't even catch. Actually, there's a few things. One of them was this. He says, and, and, he, and he, he uses numbers. Whenever God could have said, don't you remember when I fed the multitudes? 
Like Jesus could have said to them, don't you guys remember when I fed the multitudes? And it would have carried the same point, but he wanted to make another point within the point. And so he actually uses numbers and he's specific. And he says, do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 4,000, how many baskets full of fragments did you take up? Twelve. When I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many large baskets full of fragments did you take up? Seven. How is it that you don't understand? What is he saying? Don't you guys get it? I used less and fed more and there was more left over. When I fed the 5,000, when I fed the 4,000, I was trying to show you it has nothing to do with what you have. It has everything to do with your obedience to give to me what you have and my power to make that more than enough. Listen. This is what happens. It says in Mark chapter 8, verse 14, right there we're reading, it says, Now the disciples had forgotten to take bread, and they did not have more than one loaf in the boat with them. Right before this, he fed the 4,000, and there were seven baskets left over, and they forgot to take anything from what he had just done with them onto the next journey. See, the problem was less that they had forgotten to take physical bread and more that they had forgotten to take the bread of life that Jesus was offering. And they didn't take the lesson that was supposed to be learned in the feeding of the 4,000 into the boat with them. They didn't take that. They left it where it was. And all they took was one loaf of bread and they found themselves unable to think the way that He wanted them to think because they left the lesson behind. And they continued on into the boat. Isn't that cool? It says they'd forgotten their bread. What had they forgotten? They had forgotten to take with them the lesson that they needed to learn so that the next time they faced a situation where they were wondering how they were going to eat, they wouldn't be able to think the way they did before He revealed that to them. They knew His act and they forgot to actually catch His ways. And this is what Jesus was saying. This is why when they couldn't cast out the demon, Jesus doesn't say like, okay guys, I'm so thankful that you guys know to turn to Me. He says, you, you faithless and unbelieving generation, how long must I be with you? How long must I suffer with you? Like, that's not sweet, cuddly Jesus. That's Jesus saying, to whom much is given, much is required. Once you've experienced My power flowing through your life, and that the demons they came back and they said the very thing. They didn't say, we raised the dead in your name. They didn't say, we healed the sick in your name. They said the one thing they marveled about. So this was one thing we know for sure happened. And I know the Bible points this out so that this point won't be lost. They said, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Because He told them, heal the sick, raise the dead, cast out lepers, and preach the gospel of the kingdom. Right? The one thing that they said they experienced was, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. What was, why did they point that out? Because the Bible wanted us to know that this is something they had already experienced. Because there's going to be a time where they don't experience it, and Jesus is going to make a point. And what does He say? You faithless and unbelieving generation. How long must I be with you? How long must I suffer with you? What is He saying? You guys, listen to me. You can't think the way you thought before you experienced something that I called you into and be okay. It's not okay. You weren't supposed to come back with a story about the demons. You were supposed to come back excited about the reason why the demons left so that the next time you face a demon, you actually understand and have the authority to make it go. This is what He said to him. He said, don't be excited about the demons. Be excited that your names are written in the book of life. What is He saying? He's not saying be excited that you're going to go to heaven when you die. 
That's what we've taken that as. No, he was saying, don't be excited about the, the act. Be excited about the way, the why. It's because you're in me and I'm in you. Be excited that you have that authority, not just that that authority worked in that one instance. Because if you miss the way and you only see the act, you're helpless the next time and you're reduced to being a man with a bunch of stories about what happened, but not enough faith for what will. It's David. It's the reason David's a man after God's own heart. It's because he understands covenant and he understands that everything God has done in my life brings an expectation that is a stake in the ground that says he will do it from here out. So he goes to Saul and he says, listen, God delivered the, the lion and the bear into my hands. Surely he will deliver the head of this uncircumcised Philistine into my hands this day. What's he saying? God has revealed himself to me in a way that makes it impossible for me to be afraid of anything that comes against God. And I drove a stake in the ground with the lion, and I drove a stake in the ground with the bear, and I won't be moved from that. And it doesn't matter who walks into that valley because I understand not only what God can do, I'm confident of what He will do because in seeing Him do those things, I didn't just see a cool act of God. I actually saw a revelation of who He is and who He wants to be for me. And that's why I'll go fight Him. And you can keep your sword. You can keep your armor. I don't need them. I have Him. So once me and Patty were, actually, I'll get it the order right because it makes the story cooler. Um, I was without a vehicle at one time because my vehicle had broke down. A lot of you guys know the story, but some of you guys don't. Um, and I was talking to my, my brother-in-law and we were talking about just finances and budgeting and stuff like that. And we were, I was just talking to him and just, you know, being honest about, you know, where we were at with what we were able to save and not save and stuff like that. And he said, well, well, you guys are making a car payment, right? And, uh, and even though you don't have a car payment, you make one into an account so that when you need a car, then you have the finances available for it. And I said, no, we, we, we can't do that right this second. And um, he said, well, well, what are you going to do when you need a new vehicle? And I said, well, the truth is, I actually need one right now. I came down here to ask you if I could borrow your truck. Because <laughs> my truck's broke down. <laughs> and, he, and, of course, he's an awesome guy. He's not here today, but if any of you guys know Colin, like he would give anything to anybody he could possibly give to help him. And so he was like, yeah, take my truck. And so I took it. And uh, he said, well, what are you going to do? And I said, I don't know. I just know that God knows every single one of my needs, and if I'm following Him and I truly am doing what He's called me to do, He'll take care of it. It wasn't like this great like, faith moment, you know, where I stood there full of faith and the angels you know, descended from heaven and a dove came down. It was just a simple position of the heart that I've experienced God in that way, and so I actually believe that the next time that, that something arises in my life that's a need in my life, not a want, but a need in my life, and sometimes a want, but definitely a need. I need a vehicle to be able to do the things that I do, and meet people and get places I need to go. And, and I said, I don't know, but I just know that like, he knows my needs and, and he'll, he'll take care of it. And so um, I went and met a guy and, um, and he saw that I was driving a truck that wasn't mine and asked me where my truck was. And I said, oh, it's, it's actually still broke down. And he said, well, 
well, I have a mechanic that works for me full-time, and, and he's not doing anything right now. Give me your address. I'll send him by to pick up your truck, and I'll take care of fixing it for you. And I was like, see? You know, like, he, he will provide. Like, he does know my needs. And it was like such vindication for the word that I had spoke of, like, God knows, and he'll take care of it. You know, and I was thinking, this is awesome. Um, and so uh, two days later, the guy called me, and he said, um, he said, man, your, your truck's actually worse than we were thinking. We were hoping it was just going to be this, but it's going to need to be completely rebuilt. But, but I'm going to take care of it. He said, but, but I have an offer to make you. He said, um, I, uh, I have a vehicle that has 50,000 miles on it. It's a whole lot more reliable than what you're driving right now. And I kind of like this little truck. So how about we trade? And I was like, eh, at that moment, I said, yes. He said, well, I'm not going to tell you what it is. You just have to make this decision in faith. I was like thinking to myself, dude, it could be a 76 grand marquee. <laughs> like, if it's only got 50,000 on that baby and it's more reliable than what I have, I don't even care. Like, yeah, I'll trade it. And uh, he's like, and I think you'll like it. It's pretty cool. Well, long story short, if you guys have seen or haven't seen, the, the vehicle he brought to my house two days later and gave to me and handed me the title for, which made my head spin and feel like it was a balloon attached to my body, was a, a Jeep Wrangler Rubicon lifted with rims in perfect brand new condition. Just an amazing vehicle, way beyond what I would have even thought to ask, right? So he really is the God that wants to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we can think or ask because I've never been per- someone who cared a whole lot about what I drove. I just drove vehicles that were good on gas and got me where I needed to go. And God blessed me with something that was beyond what I would have asked him for. So a little while later, we're sitting on the couch, me and Patty, and, and we're talking. And, and we needed some new furniture. We had an end table that when you tried to move it, one of the legs would fall because it was just propped on there and everything was stripped out. And, um, and our couches, the back cushions from our kids from, you know, eight years of use and the kids climbing on them and learning how to walk on them had the the cushions had become disconnected from the back of the couch and they were sagged and you know all the filling had settled to the bottom and 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 we had a greyhound that one time thought there was a squirrel inside the cushions and so she had dug him under the cushions so we had to flip it over you know and hope nothing happened to the top and when it did I super glued it and then so we were having this discussion sitting in the living room and I said yeah we do and 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 Patty said well we got to do something because it shouldn't be like where we have to like save for a year to buy a new couch, should it? And I, you know, she just, that's where she was at in that moment, right? And I was like, I, don't worry, she gets vindicated in a couple minutes. Um, <laughs> I, I believe for a couch, she believed for something bigger. <laughs> um, and, I, and I just looked at her and I said, hon, like, if we think like that, we, we would have to completely forget what God just did a few weeks ago with the vehicle. Because I said, I'm not worried about it. I know we'll get new furniture somehow. I mean, I'll, I'll, you know, I, I was thinking maybe you know, someone will ask me to come speak somewhere and I'll get paid and we can use that money to buy a couch or whatever. You know, God's able to provide somehow. And so I wasn't worried about it. I honestly wasn't. And again, it wasn't one of those faith moments where I was just like, ah. But I remembered what had happened and that changed the way that I thought going forward. And I said, hon, I, I can't think that way because to think that way, I would have to forget everything that God just did. And I can't. And she said, yeah, she's like, yeah, you're right. Like, okay. Two days later, I get a phone call from somebody and they said, um, hey, where are you at? And I said, I'm coming back into Greer. They said, um, I want to meet you. I have something for you. And so I met them and they said, me and my wife were shopping for furniture 
and we felt like we were supposed to buy this for you and give you this. And it was like a, a, a few thousand dollar gift certificate to a furniture store. And they said, you can buy new living room furniture and tables and decorations and whatever you want. And I was just like, yay God, you know? So, moving forward, we were praying really seriously about being debt-free. We, we didn't owe any debt besides our house, and we owed $103,000 on our house. And um, if you guys know me, like this is a big deal for me, because I've never really talked about our finances or money very much. I always thought that was something you don't talk about, but I feel like there's an encouragement in that. And if I was to shy away from it, it would be like in some way thinking it's something that I did. And that's the only reason I'd be prideful of it. If he did it, there's no reason to be ashamed of it, right? And so, um, so we owed $103,000 on our house. And, and we were praying about that. And we had talked to a friend. He said, just get with God together and just, you know, tell him the desire of your heart and then do whatever you can. And so we prayed and we just said, God, you know, our desire is to be debt free, not because we have this extravagant list of wants, but because we just feel like being debt-free would be a blessing from you and it would enable us to do things and be able to give when we, you know, we'd have more. We could do things that you call us to do. And so we just surrender this over to you and ask you to, to bless it. And at that time, we were able to pay, I think, what was it, extra $150 a month, we figured. We cut our cable. Like, we cut everything that we could cut. Gym memberships, everything. And I think we were able to pay like an extra $150 a month or something like that. And so... So after we prayed, um, we just started to pay, huh, $100 a month. Okay, yeah, we cut cable and gym membership and some other things. And, um, and so we were paying 100 extra. We just committed. This is what we can do right now. And in my mind, I'm thinking in reality, you know, reality, that it's going to take, you know, well, paying an extra $100 a year, we did the mortgage calculator. We'll pay it off nine years early. It'll save us X amount of interest. And that was cool, you know. And then we we're thinking, well, maybe if God blesses us here and there, we'll just put that right towards the mortgage. And, you know, our God's able. And I was thinking, you know, maybe within five years, you know, that's just where my faith was. I was thinking, like, maybe in five years, like, he could triple the time that it takes to pay this thing off. And, and, um, and so I went on a hunting trip that November, and when I came home, there was one of those little certificates that says you missed a certified letter. And those in the past have been bad things for me. <laughs> those have not been blessings. Um, but it was weird because it said that the sender was Roy Giese and the addressee was Roy Giese. And so I thought... Well, maybe it's my little brother. He's sent me power of attorney for closing on a house for him before when he buys a rental property. That's kind of what I figured it was. And maybe he just put my name and address so that no matter what happened, that thing would end up getting either returned to me or brought to me so it didn't get lost in the mail. And so I went down to the, the post office and gave them the card and they brought it out and there was this little envelope and it said, Roy Giese, my address. And then it said, Roy Giese, my address, and the postage was paid up in the corner. And I thought, well, that's really odd. And so I tore the package open, or the, the envelope open, and I looked inside, and just about lost bo control of bodily function. <laughs> Seriously. And I walked out to the car, and my wife thought that something was terribly wrong. 
because of the look on my face. She said, what, what's wrong? What is it? I said, you, you should look at this. And I just handed her over the envelope. And she's like, what? What's wrong? I said, just look. I'm, I, hey, you think you know how you'll act? You don't. Um, see, I said that with authority, so you believed it. But she opened the envelope, and there's a check that was anonymous, a certified bank check made out to us for $100,000. And then we were like, I couldn't even drive, y'all. I almost wrecked. I'm serious. Like, I almost went, I almost went at a red light, so then I put it in reverse to back up because I realized you go on green, not on red. Left it in reverse, light turned green, I shot backwards. <laughs> I told Patty, I'm like, I should not be driving right now. It, she did. She doesn't think I should be driving ever. <laughs> That's why if you see us, 99% of the time, she's driving. It's just better for our marriage, and I just die to self and let her do it. Um, but no, but seriously, so we went to the bank to make sure it was real, and they said, oh, it's real. And they said the funds are actually immediately available because it's certified, and the only thing is there's a note on the account that says that the people who did this don't want you to know who they are, so we can't tell you. And so we immediately went down and paid off our house that day. Well, I was talking to Patty, and she said, you know, when we prayed the other day, God showed me something, and she brought her journal out. And in her journal, it said, by this time next year, your house will be paid off. As we were praying. And she actually believed it because everything that he did leading up to that point wasn't just a cool story. She actually let it be a revelation of His character, His nature, and who He is and who He desires to be for us. And it would have been wrong for us to return to the way of thinking that we had before He did those things and act and live as if we hadn't seen and experienced the things that we had. And this is what Jesus is saying to the disciples. He's saying, you guys, listen, when I do something for you, It's not just so that you're impressed with what I can do. It's to show you who I am to give you a confidence in what I will do so that going forward, you actually are full of faith and not fear. And it's wrong for you to ever think the way you did before you learned the thing that I taught you in that moment. And that's what He's saying to the disciples. And that's what He's saying to us. And that's why in Isaiah 55, He calls us into a higher way of thinking and a higher way of living is because He desires for us to never ever live again like people who don't know Him as a Father and have an orphan mentality and walk through life, maybe even with stories of what He could do. He wants us to walk through life with a confidence in what He will do. Then we can be like David and say, surely God will. Not surely God can. Not surely God could. But because He's revealed Himself to me as the God who delivers me, the lion and the bear into my hands, I have to believe that He will be the God who delivers the head of the Philistine into my hand also. Because that wasn't just a story to give me hope. It was an actual representation of who He is and a revelation of who He is and who He will be. And from this day forward, I will never again think the way that I did before I experienced Him in that way. Theology is not based on our experience, but if our theology never brings us to an experience, we have to question it. 
we have to question it. Because He didn't give us a bunch of stories in the Word to make us excited about who He was. He gave us a bunch of stories in the Word to build a faith in us for who He is. And going forward, everything we learn in here should translate into the way that we think. And that's why we have to be transformed by the renewing of our mind and change the way that we think. We read something in the Word. We experience something in our lives. Our phone rings in the middle of a message. All these things happen. And from that day forward, every time we walk into church, we don't just leave our ringer on. We learn from it, and we learn from the experience. And it actually changes the way that we live. So that we never again live the way that we did before that experience. I promise you, it's the heart of God. Right? God, I thank You for who You are. God, I thank You that You've invited us into this life. God, I thank You that You've challenged us to renew our minds and be transformed by Your Word. God, I pray that we would read Your Word, that we would hear Your voice, and that none of it would ever be something that gets put on a shelf as a neat story, but it would become reality for us and that we wouldn't be able to think the way we did before we knew what we understood. God, I just ask for every person in this room that You would reveal Yourself in more and more mighty ways, God that you said you'd give us the desire of our heart if we would make our delight in you, God, that we would find so much delight in you that our heart would be drawn towards the things you have for us. God, that our desires would line up with your desires, that our will would line up with your will, that we wouldn't spend this life fighting against something, but we would live this life, God, fighting for something. I thank you for that, Father. I thank you for your blessing over this house, over every person here in this. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.